Hello and welcome back to Bad Apple. I'm Riley. And I'm Helen. New Zealand and Australia are a bit too small to have many John or Jane Doe cases. I guess everyone just knows each other. To break down the crime lingo, John and Jane Doe cases are where the identity of a body is unknown or unconfirmed. The case we'll be looking at today is kind of a Jane Doe, depending how you look at it. Today we'll be talking about the case known as Pajama Girl. On the 1st of September 1934, Australia, like the rest of the world, was going through the Great Depression. The Great Depression in Australia was from 1930 to 1939 and peaked in 1932 where the unemployment rate was at 32%. It's about 7.5% now for reference. Pre-pandemic, it was about 5%. A local man named Tom Griffith was walking a prize bull along Howlong Road. How long is the road? <laughs> How long is a piece of string? <laughs> Which is near Albury, New South Wales. You heard me right. I did say prize bull. So I guess a really big bull. Surprise bull. Won prizes. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's what people did in the 30s and in the country. Walk their bull along the road. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he was like showing it off. <laughs> he stays winning. Yeah. He... You gotta keep the prize bull in shape. That's true. While walking his bull, Griffith discovered a body in a stormwater drain which ran under the road. The body was slightly concealed by a hessian grain sack and smelt strongly of kerosene as it was also badly burnt. Kerosene is like uh, paraffin, like uh, lamp oil. Apparently it's also used in a lot of aviation fueling. Oh. I don't know anything about oils. Me neither. Especially the type you use in machines. But kerosene. Initial investigations revealed that the body was that of a woman in her 20s. She had a petite build and was wearing yellow silk pyjamas with a Chinese dragon pattern. Her head was wrapped in a towel, which had been saturated with kerosene and set on fire, burning and deforming her face to a state where it was almost unrecognisable. Now remember, we are in Depression-era Australia, and people couldn't just afford to be buying silk clothes. So the fact that this woman was wearing yellow silk pyjamas pointed towards her coming from a pretty wealthy background for the time. Her body was badly beaten, and an x-ray showed that she had a bullet in her neck. Despite the bullet being lodged in her throat, it was determined that the damage to her face and skull would have caused her death. An analysis of her teeth revealed significant dental work, but none of this was able to conclusively identify the girl, so police appealed for public assistance. With the investigation on the way, the body was initially preserved in ice at the Albury Morgue, before it was transferred to Sydney University Medical School to be placed in a bath of formalin to prevent decomposition. Police put out a sketch of this pyjama girl, as well as an edited photograph of the corpse. I think this is like those photographs where they like draw it so the eyes are open and retouch the skin a bit. I don't know how they were doing this in um, the 30s. I've seen the picture. Yeah, with her eyes open, the, that one. Well, they tried. I think it looks okay. Man, she doesn't look real good, but I guess... Well, uh, it was all uh, the traditional at that point. You have to draw over the photograph. You have to paint over it. Right. It's harder. Right. Didn't have Photoshop in the 30s. Now they use Photoshop. Yeah, right. They then put the body on public display in Sydney in hope of somebody identifying this mystery girl. Thousands of people came to visit her, and while the authorities hoped that somebody would be able to identify her, no one did. The year after Pajama Girl turned up, 
William John Mackay was appointed as the New South Wales Commissioner of Police. At this point, no one had been able to identify the badly damaged body, and the case was running into a dead end. For Mackay, apparently, the case was described as being a thorn in his side. He took on the supervision of the case in 1938 and invited Dr Thomas Benbow into the investigation in 1939. Benbow has been described as self-styled and self-aggrandizing. So would you say that means he just has like a big ego? Yeah, he's quite up himself. Yeah. He was sort of this amateur detective with an interest in forensic science. He was born in Ararat, Victoria, and had graduated from medical school in Philadelphia in 1914. The Philadelphia in the US. Mm -hmm. He had worked in various positions in England and Australia and had worked as a doctor on cruise ships too. For some reason, unbeknownst to us, Mackay liked him, and Benbow had a proposal on how to solve the Pajama Girl case. Literally... Our man's had zero qualifications to be a forensic scientist, and he was just like, this looks like a job for me. (laughs) This is why people, this is why older people say like, oh, just call them and ask for a job. Yeah, true. Because this is how it happened. Yeah. Any any of my homegirls out there, and I mean, and my homeboys, this, dudes just be going around just applying for jobs that they have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. I'm telling everyone out there, (laughs) just apply for the job. Who cares if you don't know what you're doing? That's what people be doing. Benbow initially thought that Pajama Girl was missing woman Jeanette Routledge, but during his investigations, he ended up finding her alive. That's a good outcome, I guess. Yeah. Maybe he is a bit of a detective. (laughs) He's looked in the phone book. (laughs) Then he pivoted to another theory. He concluded that Pajama Girl was Anna Philomena Morgan, a girl who had been murdered in Albury not long before the corpse was discovered. He claimed that a broken piece of bed frame, which is the part that goes under the mattress, was evidence for the murder weapon. He also drew similarities in the faces of Anna and the pyjama girl, but both these pieces of evidence were very shaky, and it also turned out that the blood on the bed frame piece was actually just rust. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> what a what a buffoon. <laughs> Despite this, Ben Bow just doesn't back down and continues to push this case towards people higher up. He even funded a court case to claim the body for Anna's mother, but he didn't. It was unsuccessful. Didn't work. The police didn't want to work with him due to his incompetence and wild theories and insisted that he was taken off the case. They were also forced to move the body to a secret location because he wouldn't give up. The man is persistent. Yeah. Mackay then puts two new detectives on the case because the old ones left, because of Ben Bow. He got them to review the 125 files of possible victims who had not been eliminated yet. Near the top of the alphabetized list was a woman named Linda Agostini. There was plenty of evidence that Linda Agostini had gone missing in August 1934, just one month before the pyjama girl was found. However, there were many physical differences, and none of Linda's friends who viewed the body or photographs of it felt like it was very similar physically to Linda. For example, Pajama Girl had blue eyes and Linda's eyes were brown. Pajama Girl had a small bust and Linda's bust was larger in size. The only thing that kind of matched was that both Pajama Girl and Linda had deformed ears, but there wasn't enough photographic evidence of Linda's ears to compare them. Was that like a common thing? I feel like the thing is, and the problem here is, there are probably different kinds of deformed ears. Right. Which is why they can't, they can't match it. Right. Okay. Otherwise, 
if there was a universal deformed ear, yeah. then easy, you right. know? Linda's husband, Antonio, returned to Sydney and voluntarily went to the police. He could not identify the body as that of his wife, but he did give them the name of her dentist. And with these dental records not matching that of the bodies, detectives were able to finally rule out the possibility of Linda Agostini as Pajama Girl. So, continually, nothing is turning up for Pajama Girl and the case remains cold for another six years. The file was reopened, however, in either late 1943 or early 1944. They circle back to Linda, and dental evidence which had been provided by her Sydney dentist was re-examined by a new dental expert. Furthermore, they took a closer look at earlier photographs of her and found that some freckles on her upper arm matched that of Pajama Girl. The discovery of these freckles prompted a few of Linda's friends and acquaintances to confirm her identity on another viewing of the body. And if you think this sounds weird, so do I. Yeah, I guess if you see it the first time, you're like, no, like, I don't want to believe that's my friend. Like, no, like, I don't think it's her. It doesn't look like her, whatever. And then the police are like, well, look at these freckles, girl. Mm." And then you're like, oh, maybe it is her. You know, it's like six years later, you're like, your your, um, mindset has changed. Maybe. You just want some answers. You're like, oh, yeah, I mean, I guess the nose maybe looks a bit like a... Anyway. So why this sudden focus back on Linda? Well, remember Antonio, her husband? Let's talk about him for a little bit. He was born in Italy and had moved to Australia in 1927, where he leased the cloakroom at a Sydney restaurant called Romano's? Yeah, Romano's. Romano's. He didn't live in there. <laughs> for Helen thought he lived in there. <laughs> I mean, are you willing to bet on that? Um, I'm willing to bet on a lot of things. <laughs> I think he might have lived in there. A cloakroom. Maybe he slept in there a bit. Mm, when things times when thi- were tough. <laughs> when things weren't good at home. Yeah. He was university educated and worked primarily as a journalist for Il Giornale Italiano. The Italian Journal. Yeah, please forgive me. This was a newspaper for the Italian immigrant community, which expressed mainly nationalistic and fascist views. During the time, funding for international fascist newspapers was provided by the Italian government, as part of promoting the spread of Italian nationalism. From 1922 to 1943, Italy was led by Prime Minister Benito Mussolini and the National Fascist Party, and like Germany, Italy had a very totalitarian far-right government. Eugenelle was a part of this scheme to push this ideology. Mm-hmm. Antonio stayed in Sydney, and he returned to his cloakroom at Romano's. So he did live there. <laughs> he didn't live Lived there. in that dusty cloakroom. No, Maybe I'm he kidding. did now. I mean, his wife's missing. Yeah. Why have a home? You can just live in the cloakroom. <laughs> but then World War II broke out in 1939, and after pledging allegiance to Germany, Italy became an enemy of Australia. Because of his affiliation and journalist work with Il Giornale Italiano, Antonio was interned in Australia in 1940 as an enemy alien. Crazy. Yeah. Internment is a crazy concept. And it happened here, and you could just do that to people. Uh Uh-huh. All's fair in love and war, Helen. During his four years in internment, he became distanced with the Italian fascist party and their ideologies, and was granted release in 1944, on the grounds that he was no longer posing a threat to Australia. So he was interned for four years. Yeah. I didn't know too much about internment camps here until I looked into it for this. 
But over 20% of all Italians who resided in Australia were interned. 20%. Yeah. One in five, bro. We have a huge Italian like community now. Yeah. Population. They do, They forgave us for doing that. Yeah. God. I wouldn't. Now, this petition for release apparently would have passed across Mackay's desk. We don't know if this is exactly what went down, but it's very possible that Mackay recognised his last name, Agostini, and maybe the case had been on his shoulders for so long, or maybe he genuinely thought Antonio had something up. We don't know about what Mackay is thinking in this moment, but some people speculate that Mackay got Antonio released from the internment camp, got the restaurant Romano to give him a job as an actual waiter so he could stop living in the cloakroom, <laughs> so that their paths could so fortuitously cross one day. Mm. Maybe he set it up that way. Well, in March of 1944, Commissioner Mackay, along with a group of Sydney's most powerful, went for a dinner at Romano's. Mackay noticed that his waiter, Antonio, was rather nervous, acting a bit shady, let's say. So he invited him back to the police headquarters for questioning. But Tony isn't the only one acting a bit shady. Suddenly, two fillings are discovered in Pajama Girl's teeth that had apparently been overlooked for the past 10 years. This new piece of evidence apparently definitively identifies Linda Agostini as the Pajama Girl, and Antonio was charged with the murder of his wife. His trial began in April of 1944. While the body was found in New South Wales, Tony was taken to Melbourne to stand trial because this is where the alleged murder took place. Before we get into the trial, let's have a little look at Linda's background. Linda was born on the 12th of September 1905 at Forest Hill, London. She migrated to New Zealand in 1926 and then to Australia in 1927. A year later, she met Antonio Agostini and they got married in Sydney two years after that in 1930. Apparently, they were quite a popular couple, both attractive and friendly. Although they were both pretty short. He was 170 centimetres. That's she, my height. And she was 153 centimetres. Don't say it. That's not my height. I'm 163. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Mood, though. He was a short king. They lived in Sydney where Linda worked as a hairdresser, but she had a drinking problem. Her heavy drinking and partying habits often brought Antonio shame within the Italian community. In 1933, the pair moved to Carlton in Melbourne, with Antonio stating that one of the main reasons for the move was that it was an attempt to fix Linda's drinking problem by getting her away from her friends who she drank with. However, this was apparently unsuccessful and her drinking continued. As we know, Pajama Girl's body was found a year later in 1934. Shocking that it didn't work. Yeah. It's as if she had an ongoing issue or something. Yeah, it wasn't just her friends. It was just alcohol. The, yeah. <laughs> It was just an addiction. What an oversight. <laughs> He's like, this will work. Antonio confessed to the murder of his wife. But how reliable was his confession? Mackay testified that he'd only been with Antonio for 10 minutes before the typist arrived to record his statement, and that he in no way encouraged or pushed Antonio into confessing. However, it turns out that the actual time recorded between his arrival and the typist's arrival was almost an hour. So... Nearly an hour he was with Mackay. Yep. Antonio also maintained that Mackay had told him that Pajama Girl had been identified as his wife and he was going to get arrested, but a confession to manslaughter would result in a lighter sentence. So according to Antonio, he woke up one Monday morning to find Linda threatening him with a revolver. In the struggle that followed, 
The gun had gone off and killed Linda. He then took the body and drove off in his car. Apparently, when he saw the lights of Albury coming up ahead, he turned off the road and found a bridge where he placed her body under. By the way, it takes like four hours to drive from Carlton, Melbourne to Albury, New South Wales. Also, this man is a mess. He says he turned off the road before he got to Albury, but to actually get to the location where the body was discovered, he would have had to have driven through the city. So that's not adding up. He also mentioned revolver, but the actual bullet found in her head belonged to a pistol, which is something he should have known given his prior military service. He'd spent some time in the military, I mean Italy. He mentioned the bullet wound in her neck, but did not mention how badly beaten she was when she was found. It wasn't until the Melbourne police asked about her head injuries that he said that he had dropped her body down the stairs. Plus, like, the original investigation found that she died from the head and the skull injuries, Mm -hmm. not the bullet wound, Mm -hmm. remember? So he also describes pouring petrol over the body, and we know that it was kerosene lamp oil that was actually on her. His timings were inconsistent, his details were vague, such as the details about how he wrapped the body, where his car was parked. Yeah. Along with his shaky admission, the physical identification of Linda is also kind of weak. So these two fillings that they suddenly found in her teeth that took 10 years to be discovered, well, Linda's Sydney dentist unfortunately was not the type to keep good records of his client's teeth. So he couldn't really say what work he did or didn't do on any such client, because all dental work is kind of the same. The dental evidence was thoroughly combed over by Mackay. The report was covered in pencil markings and handwriting, which was identified as Mackay's. Almost like maybe he was looking for something that wasn't there. We also know the difference in eye colour and bust size, but at an earlier coronial inquest, expert witnesses convinced the coroner that after death, her brown eyes could have turned blue, and the damage done from the burns could have shrunk her breasts, her bust. Although there's like no evidence of this kind of stuff ever happening before. That sounds a bit outlandish to me. They're just saying it's possible. Yeah. Right. I mean, maybe the eye colour, if she was like sitting in that liquid that they had her in, maybe there was like some sort of reaction or something. And I mean, maybe I guess if you're, if when you're burned, I know your skin like shrinks. So maybe that would add up. But look. Feels like a bit of a stretch. Feels here. like they're just trying to um make it work. Put a square peg in a round hole. They're just trying to make it fit. I guess it's also important to note Antonio was not a personality that the press would defend. As an Italian, a fascist in that climate, the odds were against him. He was also in no position to antagonize the police, and any amount of pressure or even the promise of a light sentence would have been able to elicit a confession from Agostini. The media did what they do and really stereotyped his character in line with the view towards Italian immigrants during that time. They described his testimony as halted and uneducated, even though his English was reportedly very good, and they conspired how he was hiding a violent temper under his unoffending demeanour. They would also not recognise that he had a job as a journalist. That would be too high above his aptitude. The press. Back at it again. They also hinted that he had mafia connections because, of course. Yeah. Even though he grew up in the northern part of Italy. Right. And the mafia down the south part. <laughs> <laughs> down in the little, the bottom of the boot. The toe. 
Or the heel. The, mainly the toe and the rock. Yeah, right. How original. Yeah. All of this. Yeah. Why is it always someone hears... I mean, to be fair, I hear Italy and I'm like, oop. <laughs> <laughs> the mafia. <Did> somebody say. <laughs> mafia. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, come on. But we're, something original. We're well-meaning. We're like, oh, cool. The yeah, mafia. Yeah. And we're also not out here trying to have a hot take. Yeah. The j- journalists should be trying to have hot takes. Anyway. I guess they thought this was a hot take at the time. Maybe it was. Now it would just be... Now it's been done. Not tasteful. Yeah. Yeah. In June of 1944, the jury returned a not guilty verdict for the murder charge, but a guilty verdict for manslaughter. They deliberated for only two hours. The maximum sentence that could have been imposed on Antonio was 15 years imprisonment, but he was sentenced to six years with hard labour. They were doing that thing, Helen. Could have been 15, but six and make it hard. (laughs) Yeah, okay, okay. Is it six years imprisonment, nine years hard labour? Or is it just six years with hard labour included? Included. Okay. Six years with sure. hard, and you got to work hard. You have, we have to recover from the Second World War. I don't think we still do that. Yeah, that sounds a bit... Yeah. They were short on tradies. Yeah, they needed someone to make bricks or something. Yeah. This sentence was seen as pretty lenient. The judge seemed to suggest that he was being lenient because Linda had been a bad wife and he kind of hinted that she like deserved it original a very original i can't tell like it was kind of out of context Mm. this like this view and i can't tell if it was like it deserved it because she was like lashing out and he'd acted kind of in self-defense because she had the gun gun. or that like she just sucked as a wife and therefore i don't know bit of both yeah definitely not a view that we would hold now But some people suggest that Mackay had something to do with the lenient sentence, that he had promised Antonio that he would get off lightly if he just helped him get this pyjama girl thing off his books. In the book, The Pyjama Girl Mystery, A True Story of Murder, Obsession and Lies, author Richard Evans suggests that this was the case. He says that at the time, the influence of the New South Wales Commissioner of Police could have easily spread to the Victorian judiciary. The trial judge could be persuaded to give a light sentence despite his own convictions. Remember, they made Antonio look pretty bad, and the short deliberation time of the jury could indicate that Mackay was in their ear as well, either through an agent that had been placed among the jury or direct instructions from Mackay himself. He just waltzed into the deliberation. (laughs) He was like, listen. Yeah. He, manslaughter, bye. Bye. (laughs) You better... (laughs) Or I'm going to get all of you. Yeah. At the one hour, 59 minute mark. Yeah. The doors bust open. <laughs> Mackay. He's bashed up the guard outside the jury room. <laughs> barges in. Yeah. Further to this theory that Mackay had agreed to help Tony get off easily is that he was released four years into his six year sentence in 1948 under a general amnesty and was deported back to Italy where he lived a relatively normal life. In Italy, he married a widow named Giuseppina Gassoni in 1952 at Cagliari, Sardinia, and he died there in 1969. He made it. Maybe he worked really hard. Hard labour. Yeah. He built the state library. (laughs) The whole library. He built the whole of Melbourne. Amnesty. Italy was coming back, Inda. Or do you think Australia started that? 
negotiation. I don't really know, to be honest. I don't know what was going on. Maybe our maybe our jails were getting a bit full. Yeah. And we were like, you know what we can do? Deport some of them. Yeah, right. On the 13th of July, 1944, Pajama Girl was buried in the Preston Cemetery at the state's expense. An article that day stated that it was expected in official circles that friends of Mrs. Agostini would claim the right to bury the body, but as no application had been made to the Crown Law Department, the decision for burial was made. Four journalists acted as pallbearers as Linda had no relatives nearby. About 50 people turned up, mainly out of morbid curiosity. Bit like us. Yeah. According to the age at the time, Reverend C. Woodhouse of Fitzroy's St. Mark's Church conducted the ceremony. As the burial service was read, one woman wept and another knitted. One woman peered into the grave with a small dog clutched in her arms. Some people said that um, it was, like, insensitive for people to turn up at her funeral just to, like, check it out and not, like, it wasn't very respectful to her life. I would want people to turn up. Even if... Yeah, even if they were just having a sticky beak. I guess I would want them to... A sticky beak? Like sticking your nose in where it's not wanted. Big? Beak. Beak. Like a bird. Sticky beak. Sticky beak. Like a bird has a sticky beak. I see. Like an um, iris. Ibis. Yeah, like an ibis. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. Come on. (laughs) Really? Yeah. I guess so. Preston Cemetery is only 10 kilometres from us, Ellen. So you, you know we could go and look at it now. Really? Uh huh. We could look at her grave. Yeah, we could, if well, it would take us ages to find it, I reckon. But we could do it. No, I reckon we could. Um, there must be a map. We it's probably on Google somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. These women turned up because at least out of the fifty, some would have turned up out of genuine <laughs> upset. Yeah. Yeah. We all like vigils and stuff for. Yeah. People now. Yeah. It's a similar similar vibe. vibe. No she one... just didn't have a vigil, so they had to go to the funeral. Yeah. Yeah. Although the one knitting is a bit... Uh, yeah. That's a bit... <laughs> Just put it down for five minutes. <laughs> yeah. I guess the main question that lingers for me is maybe Tony did kill his wife, but was his wife Pajama Girl? Mm. Was Linda Pajama Girl? Or did he just make his story fit into what Mackay was telling him yeah. So that he could get the deal Mackay was offering and, like, get out of the country. Because he's just been interned for four years. If it was a deal, it definitely wasn't a bad deal to be presented with. Especially if he did kill his wife somewhere yeah. along the line. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of a good deal. I feel like all the... All his conf- his confession is so bad. <laughs> yeah. That... I yeah. don't know if it was Linda Agostini. Yeah. I don't know if I buy it was Linda either. Yeah. Let us know what you guys think. Yeah. And with that, we've just about run out of Jane and John Doe cases. <laughs> yeah, it. this is really the only one. I really wanted to do one. I was like, man, those are so cool. Like, how can people just not be identified? How do people just not know? Yeah. Like, how How does that happen? No one knows them? What? I guess when there's a lot of immigration and stuff like that. Yeah. You move somewhere completely on your own with no family. Yeah. Doesn't really happen now, I guess. Records are a bit too good. Yeah. And that's all on that. Pajama Girl. Mm, We hope you enjoyed our retelling of this, I guess, slightly old tale. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy the rest of your day, Helen. 
Hope you enjoy yours too. Thank you. <laughs> I will. I'll get to see how it goes anyway. Because I'm never more than five meters away from you. Yeah. Fuck. Alrighty. Yeah. Bye, guys. Bye.